It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Fox News Radio Studios in New York City. Fresh off the set of Fox and Friends. It's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We have a lot to get to this hour. We're watching some riveting uh, testimony. Secretary of Defense uh, Austin, Generals Milley and McKenzie try to basically say, not my idea when it came to leaving Afghanistan the way we did. Thanks. Not my idea to leave people behind. Okay, fine. So it's... Who? President Biden, you're on your own. I gave him recommendations. I can't share with you my recommendation, but let me tell you what I said. That's really what McKenzie's saying. Uh, at least he's getting direct questions from Tom Cotton, the Senator from uh, Senator Fisher, uh, and others. Uh, it seems like even uh, Senator, Senator Blumenthal brought up a great point. Who is in charge of getting the rest of the Americans out of Afghanistan? Can you do that? Can you get an Afghanistan evacuation czar? And Jeff Secretary Austin essentially said, oh, that's the State Department's job. Does anyone care about the Americans left behind at all? Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There were assessments that ranged initially from one to two years to, uh, to you know, several months. It was very difficult to predict with accuracy. Nobody predicted that, you know, the government would fall in 11 days. I'm sorry, but I'm sure the war games are not going to play that out. Explain yourself. That's what General Milley, McKenzie, and Austin are trying to do. We'll bring you the latest. Number two. You cannot just swap people out in the hospital setting. Uh, nurses have a lot of experience, and there's institutional wisdom, and you learn the policies and procedures and emergency protocols, so there will be some unintended harm from just swapping out personnel. No kidding, and we're about to experience it as tens of thousands, up to 72,000 hospital workers in New York State are going to be told you're fired, go home, you're not inoculated. Couldn't there have been some nuanced way to get through this? Number one. It is zero price tag on the debt. We're paying. We're going to pay for everything we spend. It's going to be zero. This is a zero dollar bill because it's going to be completely paid for. The reconciliation package would cost zero dollars. No one believes that. It's caused, unless zero is also equal to $3.5 trillion. The spending palooza is causing friction, and Joe Biden spouts fiction. As he tweets out the reconciliation package of the cost of nothing, it's truly over $5 trillion. And the party that's having the most problems, the Democratic Party with the Democratic Party. With me right now is one of the uh, smartest people out there in the medical community today. Scott Gottlieb, author of Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Uh, Doctor, welcome. Congratulations on the book. Uh, I can't believe how much I've forgotten just a year and a half and going through it. But let's just ask you quick about what New York's going through. How concerned are you that 16% of the medical uh, the medical community is not vaccinated and that we could be losing up to 70,000 being fired over the next few days or fired already? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm concerned that the medical that there's a large component of the medical community that's not vaccinated. We require vaccinations in the healthcare setting for hepatitis B, for chickenpox, for influenza, to protect our patients. And so I think COVID shouldn't be any different given um, the fact that it's dangerous in the healthcare setting and people can transmit the infection without knowing it. Uh, the fact that we're going to put pressure on the healthcare workforce and potentially lose healthcare workers in New York, that's very concerning. Uh, a lot of the hospitals operate already understaffed, especially when it comes to nursing. 
So if we see resignations of nurses inside hospitals and other qualified personnel, that's going to be very hard to make up. I suspect there's going to be some kind of grace period. People aren't going to be terminated right away. But eventually, um, people could be pressured to leave. And the final point I'll make is that people who lose their jobs because they wouldn't comply with a vaccine mandate, it's unclear to me um, whether or not that's going to qualify as job abandonment. They may not qualify for unemployment insurance as well. So it's going to put uh, it's going to put hardship on the individuals. It is. And I think New York is going out of the way to bar them from getting unemployment. However, why would somebody like a nurse or doctor orderly or physician assistant choose not to? I mean, you you talk to these people, you see them in the lunchroom. Would, have you heard the PhDs of the world, and there's there's a lot, that don't want to get vaccinated? Have you heard good and, and thought to yourself, well, that's a legitimate worry? Look, I haven't, I haven't heard a good rationale. I think that there's people who still harbor a perception that this is a new vaccine and they want, to, they want to see more experience with the vaccine, more data. But the reality is we have a plethora of data with this vaccine. It's, we now have two years of data. It's been in hundreds of millions of people, almost 400 million doses distributed in the United States. It's been extensively studied. The clinical trials with it were the largest clinical trials really undertaken in modern history. And I worked at FDA, and, and I hadn't seen a clinical trial larger than the ones that have been done with these COVID vaccines. And so I think people could have confidence in the vaccine. When you talk to healthcare workers, the views are varied. Different people have different reasons why they have reluctance. But the overarching reason among the small component of healthcare workers who are still reluctant is just lack of experience with the vaccine, a perception that it's still a novel vaccine. What about the micro uh, myocarditis that we hear about with younger people? I know a couple of athletes that took the vaccine, never had it before, and have had this this fluid on the heart or swelling of the heart. Yeah, unclear um, whether or not it's truly vaccine related. I think that there's a presumption that it probably is. It seems to be something that's manifest largely in young males. Um, so in that age population, you should factor that into how you make risk benefit assessments. But It's not something that's really um, been unearthed across the continuum of people who are reluctant to take the vaccine in healthcare settings. What you're seeing in in New York is a lot of, you know, older um, healthcare personnel, nurses, sometimes women um, of childbearing age who still have a perception that it hasn't been studied in that setting as well. But the issues around the the pericarditis, myocarditis is mostly confined to younger males. We're talking to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Uh, so you say, uh, Doctor, you chronicle how this happened and what you was feasible. Say one of the big stories is that we were not ready for this virus. And if you think about why we were not ready for the virus, is because it wasn't France and England that are giving it to us where you could pick up the phone and you guys had relationships. It seems as though China wasn't telling us what was about to hit us. How much would it have benefited had China come clean on what this virus was? Right. And I talk a lot about this in the book and why we need to get our foreign intelligence agencies more engaged in the global public health mission to actually monitor for emerging infections that could be the spark that lights the flame on the next pandemic. We can't rely on multilateral engagement and people coming together in the World Health Assembly and the World Health Organization holding hands and promising to share information again. We now know that there was information that was obtainable as early as mid-December and probably earlier than that, but certainly based on the public reporting, by mid-December, the Chinese were aware, the Chinese government was aware that there was a novel pathogen spreading a respiratory pathogen. Samples were being sent off for sequencing, so they knew it was a novel coronavirus. Dozens of samples were being sent off for sequencing. There was a belief by physicians that it was spreading through asymptomatic transmission, and we now know that healthcare workers were getting infected in mid to late December. When healthcare workers get infected with a pathogen, that's a pretty good indication that there's human-to-human transmission because typically the healthcare workers will get the disease from their patients. 
All that information was critical. All those facts really weren't um, ascertained until early to mid-January. So a, a full month, we could have had a handle on asymptomatic transmission, um, the fact that it was human-to-human -human transmission, the fact that this was a novel coronavirus that had SARS-like features. Those were critical pieces of information that were obtainable certainly weeks earlier, maybe even a month earlier. You talk about trust, and the healthcare community has got to get trust back with the American public, like it or not. Here's some of the contradictions that I think really reflected people and caused friction. For example, Dr. Rochelle Walensky in April, Cut 22. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real-world data. If that's true, take off the mask, I'm vaccinated, your problem is your problem. You're vaccinated, you're not vaccinated, live your own life. Is that true? Look, I don't think the issue of trust is that public health officials were wrong. Public health officials were wrong through the course of this this um was this she crisis. wrong i think the issue is excuse me was she wrong can can you if you're vaccinated uh can you get the virus from an unvaccinated person you can but typically you're going to get a more mild infection you're not at risk for i know but that's different outcome. than what she said right but the the issue is the information on which public public health officials were drawing conclusions was imperfect and i think when public health officials conveyed um sort of determinations and conclusions to the public, they didn't express the um, the uncertainty. There was a lot of uncertainty all through this crisis. We were in the fog of viral war, but if you look at the public health pronouncements and the guidance that was issued to the public, there was a degree of certainty around it that shouldn't have been because we because exactly. the data was imperfect, but we weren't we weren't upfront about where we were where we had ambiguity and uncertainty. So everything that came out of public health officials seemed like it was sort of gospel and it was certainty and it wasn't. True. And, and it's because now, you know, we're relaying what you guys are telling us. We're hearing what's going on. We understand there didn't seem like a, uh, a lot of unknowns. We waited for the vaccine. We were told it's going to be a lot longer. Thankfully, they were wrong about that. Then we were told, don't wear a mask to give you a false sense of security. And then when asked why we were told to wear a mask and maybe two masks, and we even had somebody say we should wear goggles. Remember this in June, cut 27. We did not want them to be without the equipment that they needed. So there was not enthusiasm about going out and everybody buying a mask or getting a mask. We were afraid that that would deter away from the people who really needed it. So he was saying that I knew we should wear a mask, but I was afraid everyone would go buy one. So I told you not to wear a mask. I mean, that doesn't pass the laugh test. Well, but this gets back to my my other point, which is that when we're putting out guidance to the public, when CDC was issuing guidance, and this is a big part of what I talk about in the book. We, first of all, the data was imperfect. We, sh we, we need better information to inform these, these decisions. We need a, an agency that's capable of doing real-time analysis and informing policy decisions, informing policymakers much more quickly. We had guidance in place that, that was unclear, uncertain, based on poor information, and it sort of stood in place. We didn't re-adjudicate it. But when CDC issued guidance to the public, like, we should stand six feet apart, um, this is spreading through droplets and not through aerosols, and, or it's spreading through contaminated surfaces, which we now know is wrong, they don't, um, they don't have to articulate what the scientific rationale is for their judgments. If you go and look at a CDC document, oftentimes they don't really articulate what is the scientific basis, and they don't have to articulate what the level of certainty is. So when the public gets that guidance, they can't make assessments about which things they're going to try to follow with more vigor than others because certain things are more certain than other things. If the, if the intelligence community issues a piece of intelligence to a policymaker, they'll say, we assess X, and we assign a moderate degree of confidence to this. 
You'll never hear public officials talk like that. And I think that's the kind of lexicon and language we need to adopt. So the public actually has a sense of what the level of scientific rigor and certainty is around these recommendations. Because we're looking for, you guys are, you know, wearing the lab coats, going through the data, going out, looking at experiments, studying diseases, looking through the microscope. I get it. But then when the public has practical questions, hey, can I go out? Can I go to work? Uh, can I hang out in a bar? Can I open up my restaurant? And that's when people, I don't know if they're going to get themselves into trouble when they answer this. But then we hear later going outside without a mask, obviously, in the woods, one of the safest things you can do. In Australia, they're arresting people for that. That's their problem. But I remember hearing this specifically and thought, where did this come from? Cut 24. Dr. Rochelle Walensky. So if you have five 10-year-olds who are on a soccer field all in front of the same soccer ball, we're trying to make sure that they're not a lot of heavy breathing around a singular soccer ball with five kids around it at the same time. So we can't breathe outside around a soccer ball? See, these are the practical things that, that I, I walk the streets, people are asking me these questions. But we were getting such contradictory answers. We found out later being outside, playing sports is not a problem. Look, I think it gets back to the underlying issue where there was a, a high degree of uncertainty about what was and wasn't uh, sources of transmission. What were the social and geographic compartments where this virus was spreading? We didn't really understand that, and we made false presumptions about it uh, because we had imperfect information. We weren't collecting adequate information. We didn't have an agency capable of doing the analytical work. CDC wasn't really up to the task. We need to change all this going forward if we're going to be better prepared for the next pandemic, but we also have to recognize where the problems were. I mean, one example, early on in the crisis, and I talk about this in the book, CDC was making, um, issuing numbers every day on how many people were hospitalized with COVID. So they said there were 2,300 people hospitalized with COVID. This was early on. Most people thought there were 2,300 people hospitalized with COVID. But what, what CDC was actually doing was they were collecting a sample of hospitalizations from 1,000 of the nation's 6,000 hospitals and then modeling how many people they thought were hospitalized with COVID. So you thought they were actually reporting the number, but they weren't. And they actually told the journal Science at the time that it's impossible to actually collect information on how many people were hospitalized with COVID. We now know that's not true. The numbers we're putting out now are actual hospitalizations. But it just goes to show you how flawed the data collection, the analytical work was, and what was being communicated to the public. This cut through the entire crisis. We didn't have good information to make decisions, and we didn't have a clear articulation of how flawed the information was. So, you know, let me just say, I'm in the real world and you're in, uh, you're in the medical world who's a, is an excellent broadcast. I watch you every Sunday, especially on Face the Nation. But in the real world, but this is what people say to me. Out of nowhere, the President of the United States says, I got an announcement Wednesday afternoon. We're going to get booster shots. The FDA 16 to 2 says, I don't, I don't think that's a good move. That's a little premature. So the, the administration looks confused at the very least. I don't care who's right. They look confused. And then people come up to me all the time and say, wait a second, don't they make money off these shots? I know you're on the board of Pfizer. If I'm on Pfizer, I'm hiring Dr. Scott Gottlieb. There's nothing wrong with that. You say it every time you hop on the air. I get it. But people see a money element to, why do I need a booster? Really? You said I wasn't going to get any care. I'm not going to get it if I get the virus. 90% chance I'm not. Then we have these breakthrough cases. Wait a second. Then the breakthrough cases, well, don't worry about it. You have less symptoms, which ended up being true. And now we need a booster shot. And people say... Why is it that Pfizer and Moderna, uh, and Moderna's heading there, get the booster shots, but Johnson & Johnson is not, no one's recommended they get that booster shot, is a profit of anything to do with what you guys are saying? Well, look, 
I think that we're going to have recommendations around all the vaccines. And I think the FDA and CDC came out in the right place around boosters. They didn't say the entire population needs to go get boosters. Where they, what they said is people over the age of 65 and those in long-term care facilities should get boosters. And for everyone else, they have to make a judgment based on their occupational exposure and their underlying health conditions. I think that's pretty good guidance. There's pretty clear evidence now from Israel that older individuals who were vaccinated a long interval ago are getting breakthrough infections in a growing number of cases, those breakthrough infections are translating into... Dr. Gottlieb, um, real quick, I'm up against a break, but why is the president jumping the FDA? Let the board come up with a conclusion because the risk of distrust is too great. Don't you agree? I agree that this was a disjointed process that created a perception of disharmony between the different public health officials, and that that saps public confidence if people don't think even the experts can agree. The process wasn't run well. I agree. I tell you, if you want to get the truth, find out how we got to where we are, somebody without a political agenda, it's Dr. Scott Gottlieb's book. You need to read it. It's called Uncontrolled Spread. Doctor, I'm glad you're on this book tour. I got a chance to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. uh, Back in a moment with your calls. We'll also give you the latest on the testimony. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.